Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. If you have your Bible journals with you today, uh, I encourage you to open those up. We're going to be starting on page 10. And of course, the design of these books is you've got God's Word on the left, you've got blank on the right, blank pages on the right. So get out your pens and you can uh, take some notes, you can underline some things. I'm going to give you some important statements, phrases, and words as we walk through Galatians chapter 3 and 4 today that you need to remember, that you need to like underline not only maybe in this Bible journal or maybe highlight on your phone, but more importantly, far more importantly, that you need to underline and highlight in your mind and in your heart. Because these these are words that come directly from God's heart to help us know how to live, what to do. And so again, from page 10 in the Bible journal, uh, or of course on your phone or your Bible, whatever you have with you, we're going to be walking through and talking through what today we read in Galatians 3, an important question. And really in the first five verses of this passage in Galatians chapter 3, we're going to look at six very important questions. Now you remember last week we were in Galatians chapter 1 and and chapter 2, and there we talked about how Paul in the very first few verses of Galatians chapter 1, he came to that statement where he said, I marvel that you have already turned away and turned your hearts towards a different gospel. That word different there is the Greek word heteros, which literally means an opposite gospel, a completely different gospel than what you heard and what you believed in and what we have been taught. And so Paul is making it clear like right out of the gate, like I can't even believe that you are so uh, dim-witted and so like like absent-minded and so short-sighted that you have actually turned away from what changed your life and you're running back to something that God delivered you from through his son Jesus Christ. And so uh, Paul like right out of the gate in Galatians like he like to the church like I can't believe you're so stupid. That's really what he's saying. That's really what he's saying. When he says, I marvel at, that's the, uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, the, uh, the apostolic way to say, you are a complete idiot. You won't find that in the King James, I promise. But that's really what Paul's saying, like, I can't believe it. Like, what are you thinking? Like, why are you so dumb? Why are you turning away? And so he goes on to make the case of why that, that it is in faith and, and it is through Christ and the gospel is enough. And as we talked about last week, that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is all you need to experience the gift and the hope of the gospel. And in the passage we read last week in in chapter 2, verse 16, we we kind of get a a kind of a key verse, if you will, a key statement that's found in that verse where, where we read, yet we know that a person is made right with God through Christ. That is how you're made right with God. Now understand, kind of as a baseline for that statement and a baseline for everything that we talked about, not only through this series, but through every series and through every passage and through every sermon that is ever given on this stage, that we all recognize that we come to this thing called life from the perspective of, from the status of, our position is that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. That we come to this, uh, this idea, the context of our sermon today, as it tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And so I want you right now in this moment, before we jump into Galatians chapter 3, I want you to take a second 
And I want you to kind of, if you could, in kind of a, a visual way, an illustrative way, that it act as if there's a mirror right in front of where you're seated right now. And you're looking in a mirror, and so obviously if you're looking in a mirror, the only thing that you see in that mirror should be you. And as you look in that mirror, the thing that you understand, the thing that you recognize, the reflection you see is that this is a person who was born a sinner, who had no way to get to heaven, who didn't have a chance, who didn't have a prayer, who could not work enough, earn enough, be good enough, be sweet enough, be kind enough, love enough, who could never get to the place that they could work their way towards heaven. That the person you're looking at in that mirror today is a person that if it were not for Christ, you would have no hope. And that's the posture that we are walking into this uh, this series, and again every series here at Thomas Road, that we're walking into today. But I want you to think about that, that reflection, if you will, as we continue in our study of the book of Galatians. Again, a book that was written to the churches of Galatia, but again, as all of Scripture is, it's God's Word, and while written to a specific group, a specific people at a specific time, God was not simply thinking of the churches in Asia when He he inspired these words. He was not aiming His thoughts and hearts to a group of people who are in modern-day Turkey without thinking of all of us in this room today. And so, as we go to Galatians chapter 3, we go to this all-important question. And I'm going to read the first five verses, again, on on page 10 in your Bible journal. And so, I want you to underline or highlight, if you will, the six questions that we're about to read. Six questions that Paul poses in this this follow-up to his statement of, I can't believe you're so stupid. Number two, Jesus is enough. And now we come to chapter 3, where Paul writes this. Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, remember what I said a moment ago in chapter 1? He, you know, the first few verses there, he says, I can't believe you're so stupid. Now he's calling them foolish. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? That's question one. He asks that question, who has bewitched you? Or who has cast an evil spell? If you're reading in the NIV or the CSB or the New Living Translation, like who has put an evil spell on you, a hex on you, that you do not obey the truth? That's question one. We go to verse two. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? That's question two. Question three, out of verse three, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That is question four. Verse four, have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, that's question five. And then question six, out of verse five, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so basically all six of those questions are kind of reworkings or or kind of rephrasing of one simple question that we read there, the last question in verse 5. And basically it's this, is the Spirit of God was sent to you, did it come to you through following the law? In other words, did it come to you because of what you did, or did it come to you because of what Christ has done? 
And that really is the ultimate question, the all-important question. And as often is the case, God continues in inspiring His Word to proceed to answer that question. Now, F.F. Bruce, in talking about these first five verses of Galatians chapter 3, he says these words, the gospel of Christ crucified, as Paul saw it, so completely ruled out the law as a means of getting right with God that it was scarcely credible that people who had once embraced such a gospel should ever turn to the law for salvation. Again, a very fancy, theological, like a, like, like a PhD way to say this. I can't believe someone who has experienced the grace and the freedom and the liberty of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be so dumb to go back to the old way of doing things. That's the Jonathan Falwell version of what a PhD F.F. Bruce said. Okay, now F.F. Bruce sounds a lot smarter, and he is, than me, certainly, but that's the way I would say, like, how could you be so stupid? To know that all that you must do is believe that Jesus is God's Son, that He died and that He rose again, turn away from the sin of rejecting Christ and accept Him and believe in Him as your Savior and that He will save you in that moment if you'll call on His name. How could you be so dumb to go back to the old way of trying to figure out how you can be good enough? And that's what Paul starts this The rest of the Galatians chapter 3, that's where he starts it from, but he goes on to answer the question anyway, and he answers it in the form of, of three illustrations. And it's an answer that really comes from history. And the first answer, the first part of this answer, it's really one answer, but it's in three parts, is through the life of Abraham. And in the life of Abraham, if you look in verse 6, Paul goes on to say, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness out of Genesis chapter 15, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, I want you to take a moment right there and go back to verse 7. You ought to underline that or highlight that if you could. He says these words, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Now, how many of you remember that old song, Father Abraham, that we sang when we were in Sunday school, right? Like we all sang, like we want to be sons of Abraham, right? And so here, God's Word, Galatians chapter 3, says know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. It doesn't say those who are really working hard. Those who are volunteering, those who are teaching the Sunday school classes, those who are taking care of the babies in the nursery. No, those who are of faith. And you ought to circle, highlight the word faith. He goes on to say this word, a very clear, uh, clear statement, an interesting statement if you think about it, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that He preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Now, what does that mean? That means that God preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to Abraham about 14, 1500 years before Christ came. That God actually preached the gospel to Abraham. That he preached the gospel, and we're going to read it in just a moment of what that gospel looked like and what he told. And so here in this passage in Galatians chapter 3, it's a reference back to Genesis chapter 15 where God made a covenant with Abraham. We all know the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 4 and following, it says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, to Abraham, saying, 
This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. And then what we read about in Galatians 3, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. Now this covenant that God makes with Abraham is when he's talking about this, this other son from a, a different person, talking about Eliezer, that, that this other uh, son, this other person was not, would not be the one that the line of Abraham would then go through. That it's not from this one, that, that there will be one from your own body that will come, from your own seed that will come, and that is where you will be blessed. And he says, now go outside, look up to heaven. Take a look, look up to the stars of heaven, and count them if you can. Now, when God told Abraham that, Abraham certainly didn't have the knowledge that we have, the scientific knowledge that we do now. The scientific knowledge we have now is that if you walked outside tonight, and if it's a clear night, and you go outside, and with the naked eye, you look up into the skies, and let's say that it's a perfectly, you know, perfectly beautiful night, and and there's not a cloud in the sky, and you can see all the stars shining up there— that in our own galaxy alone, there's about 100 to 400 billion stars in our galaxy, but with the naked eye, we can only see about 2,500 to about 4,000 stars if we were able to even count those. And by the way, you can't. If you went out there and tried to count every star and actually do it accurately, I promise you, you're wasting your time. But only what he could see would be about 2,600 to 2,500 to 4,000. But there are 100 to 400 billion just in our galaxy. And of course, there are umpteen galaxies out there. And so what Abraham is saying is this, hey, the blessing that I'm going to give to you and your descendants, it's like if you went out, if you could count all the stars that are not in like your view, but in towards heaven, meaning not only 100 to 400 billion, but so much more. That is what God said, is what I'm going to do for you. That's the gift. That's the promise I'm going to give to you. And then he went on to not only make this covenant, he went on to guarantee this covenant. Now, obviously, when you guarantee a covenant, it's kind of like in modern day uh, language, if we make a contract with someone, if you're going to buy a house with someone, You have a document, and that document lays out all the specifics of the contract and and what's going to happen and the price that's going to be paid and the property that is included in that contract. And it goes out and spells out all the different contingencies and all the different issues that are in that. And then at the bottom of it, there's a place for you to sign as the buyer and a place for the seller to sign as the seller. It's a contract between two people. And the contract that is between two people, it has to have be ratified through, through the idea of, of consideration, that, that both parties have to actually contribute to this contract in order for it to be valid. It cannot be one-sided. But yet here in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham had this opportunity of God making a contract with him, and it was a one-sided contract. Abraham didn't have to do anything. In fact, it tells us that, that he said, now, he, Abraham, I want you to go find a cow, And I want you to go find a goat, and I want you to go find a ram, and I want you to go find a turtle dove and a pigeon. And then once you find those five animals, now remember now, this is before the Mosaic uh, law, before they actually did all the sacrifices in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And he said, I want you to get that cow, and I want you to get that goat, and I want you to get that ram, and I want you to get a really big knife, and I want you to cut them right in half. Split them right down the middle. Now here's the reason they did that. Sounds weird, 
But back in those days, that's how they made contracts. They would actually, if two people wanted to come into an agreement with one another, they would actually take uh, sacrifices, animals, they would cut them in half, they would lay them on the ground on either side, and then the two parties to the contract would, would join arms, they would shake arms, and then they would uh, shake hands, and then they would walk through the middle of these split animals. And so God said, go out and get a cow, go out and get a goat, go out and get a ram, which would not have sounded odd to Abraham at all. Get the turtle dove and the pigeon, bring them together, split them, lay them out. But he didn't tell them to walk through them. In fact, the Bible goes on to tell us in Genesis chapter 15, verses uh, like 9 and following. It says, and then Abraham fell into a deep sleep. And while he was in a deep sleep, God is the one that made his way through those animals to, to ratify this covenant, ratify this contract. While Abraham was lying down, sound asleep, resting, the contract was one-sided. Now that's important. It doesn't sound important. It's like, well, what does that all mean? Here's what it means. It means that Abraham had absolutely nothing to do with fulfilling the promise that God made to him. God alone, or as we said it last week, Jesus is, okay, come on, people. Jesus is enough, absolutely. And so that's what we see here. And so God made this covenant with Abraham. He, he makes this, he ratifies this, this, this covenant. But then Paul, in writing in Galatians chapter 3, he goes on to the second part of his answer to these six questions that are found in the first five verses. And now he brings another character to light, and that's the character of Moses. About 430 years later, after Abraham, listen to what it says in verses 10 and following. It says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That is a quoting of Deuteronomy chapter 27. But in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of that of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And I know a lot of you are sitting there saying, uh-huh. Like, like, what do you say? What does that mean? What is all that stuff? How can something, as you just read here, how can this now, this covenant being made with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, how can that be now something that is referred to here in Galatians as someone, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. It's an important reminder. And the reason he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 27 is just simply this. Paul wants all of us to remember and know that there's not a one of us alive that can do all things. You ought to underline or circle or highlight in that passage that I just read to you, verse, what, verse 11, 12, where it says all things. Cursed is the person who does not do all things. Circle that because there's not a person alive ever or ever will be alive who can do all things according to the law. And that's why that word cursed is put there. In other words, you were doomed if you had to live under the law. Because the law, the, the picture of the law, the reason for the law, we're going to read this in a moment, is simply to remind us that none of us are good enough. To remind us that none of us could ever be good enough to be set free 
through our own actions because the law is a constant reminder of how bad we really are. Does that make sense? What's well, gonna make sense if we continue to read in this passage? Because this covenant that God made with Abraham 430 years earlier, now making the covenant with Moses here, and he's talking about this idea of the law, he then brings the third part of his answer, uh, the illustration, he used Abraham, he used Moses, and now after Abraham, about 1500 years later, he uses the person of Christ. Look what it says in verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. In other words, no one takes away from it, no one adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Underline that, highlight that, circle that. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Why did I tell you to underline that? Here's why. Because God does not say, and two seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. In other words, when God made the, the Abrahamic covenant, he made the contract with Abraham 1,500 years before, what we're, you know, before Christ came, and remember when I said that he preached the gospel to Abraham? Do you remember I said that a few minutes ago? Were you awake? Everybody nod your head. I want to remind you, you're yawning right now while I'm saying that. Wake up. Okay, so here's the idea. A perfect timing. I'm sorry to, you know, no camera was on you, so no one knows who you are. It's all awesome. But when I said that, that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham, here is where God preached the gospel to Abraham. He said, and to your seed. He was not talking about Isaac. He was not talking about all the children who would come from him. He was talking about capital S seed, one that through Abraham would come the Messiah who is Christ, and it is Christ who would fulfill the contract, the covenant that God made with Abraham. Not the Mosaic law. It wasn't, you know, because of what they could do or how they could act. It was because of what Christ would do. And so, to your seed who is Christ, and this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, after Abraham, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before, before by God in Christ. In other words, the covenant that God made with Abraham was before the law even existed. That it, that it should make the promise of no effect. Listen to this. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. In other words, if it's all about the law, you're doomed. No hope. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed, capital S, seed, till Christ should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for the one only, but God is one. It is the law then against, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. You should underline or highlight there in verse 23. We were kept under guard by the law. It goes on to say in verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor. It taught us to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. In other words, we are no longer under the law. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed 
and heirs according to the promise. In other words, that if we are in Christ, if we have faith in Christ, then our, our genealogy doesn't go back through the law. Our genealogy circumvents, it, it goes around, circumnavigates the law, and goes all the way back 430 years before the law to Abraham, that when God made the covenant, that through his seed we would all be blessed, it comes not through the law, it comes through Christ. Now, all of you are sitting there saying, <clears throat> we're not living under the law. Like, we don't get it. But understand that if you've ever sat under teaching or if you've ever been in a household that has been, you know, kind of covered by, or if you yourself have been captivated by the idea of legalism or works, like you've got to be good enough, you've got to serve enough, you've got to do everything you possibly can to earn your way to heaven, then what you are doing is in a way you are submitting yourselves to living under the law. And here God's Word clearly says, you are wasting your time because Christ fulfilled the law. While before Christ came, the law was our guard, it was our tutor, it taught us. But when Christ came, we no longer need a tutor. God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Abraham's seed. If we go back to verse 23 through 24 in the New Living Translation, it says it this way, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. Now, let me read to you and a quote that Max Anders in a study of the book of Galatians said, it's a great way of putting what, what we just read. Max said, before faith in Christ came, people were held prisoners by the law. In a final image, Paul conveys the purpose of the law. In the King James Version, the second half of this verse states that the law was given as our tutor, the New American Standard, more literal than the NIV, it says it this way, was put in charge. And so a better translation is that the law was our custodian or our strict nanny. In the Jewish culture, a slave was assigned to each child to escort them to school and to assist in their supervision. This nanny was not a 13-year-old sweet little babysitter. This supervising nanny was more like a stern sergeant who had the bark of a German shepherd and the bite of a Doberman. Have you ever had a school teacher or a babysitter or an aunt or an uncle or maybe a grandmother or a grandfather who was stern like the bark of a German shepherd and the bite of a Doberman? Just raise your hand. Like you can like I, I had several teachers like that. I remember one of them. First grade, I'm not going to say her name, she was mean as a snake. And I'm telling you, she barked, I was scared to, I would not go to school. I, I wanted to stay home every day because of this teacher, because I was, like she was, had the bark of a German shepherd, and they had the bite of a Doberman, she kind of looked like a Doberman, but, but regardless, like, <clears throat> I probably shouldn't have said that part, <laughs> forgive me for I know not what I do. <laughs> but this was the law. The law was a constant reminder of sin being present in our lives. The law was a constant reminder we could never be good enough. The law was a constant reminder you can't do it on your own. But then Christ came. And then when Christ came, when He came to fulfill the law, it changed our status. And so verse 26 says this, and so now you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now that word sons is not referring to males. What it was really referring to is heirs to an estate. Because back again under Jewish culture, only the males were heirs to the estate. And so the idea is to anyone who is an heir to the estate, you are now an heir to the promise, an heir to the inheritance that comes through Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, talking about heirs, we move to Galatians chapter 4 quickly, and here we get the explanation for the free or those who have been set free as heirs. And it goes on to say here, it kind of gives us a picture of an inheritance here, which by the way, Proverbs chapter 13 verse 22 says, a good man will leave an inheritance to his children and his children's children. And so what does it say about this in Galatians chapter 4? Listen to these words, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, that has been set free, as long as he is a child does not differ at all from a slave. Though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father, even so we were children. We were in bondage under the elements of this world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those or to buy back those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. In other words, you have been set free. Quickly, the picture that's given here, it gives the idea that if you're a child and your parent passes away and they leave you an inheritance, there's probably a stipulation in your parent's will that says that everything that I have goes to my son or goes to my daughter. However, it does not go to them until they get to a certain age that I can trust them. In other words, it might be 18, it might be 25, for some of us it might be 70, like before we can actually be trusted with the, you know, the inheritance that comes from our parents. When, when Sherry and I, when we had our four, four kids, we, we created wills, and, and we created that will, and in that will we said that everything we had would go to our kids. And in the will, it very clearly stated that if, if we weren't there and they were still underage, that my parents would take care of them. And if, and if my parents, if they weren't, you know, able to, or if they were not uh, still alive, then it would go on to like my sister or something that would, she would take care of them and, and, and that she would watch over them. And there was a trustee of the estate that none of our money would go to the kids until they were old enough to, to actually be worthy to handle that money, right? So that's what it's talking about here. That's what the law did for all of mankind. Until we became of age, until we were redeemed and bought back as sons of God, heirs of God, that we were in a trust here. We were uh, under the account of, we were being guarded by, what were we being guarded by? Guarded by the law. That the law in the Old Testament from 430 years after Abraham all the way up until the time of Christ, that there was a, a stipulation placed into the will, and that stipulation was this, until your seed comes to fulfill, until we are been, have been redeemed and bought back by the one who would come, until we get of age, so to speak, that we're under the law, under legalism, under works. But when Christ came, when Christ showed up, this passage says in verses 1 through 7 that then we were made not as children, but then we were made as sons. And if we were made as sons, again, that's a, that's a term that's generic, and as sons now that we were made heirs of Jesus Christ, that now we have come into our inheritance, we have our inheritance, no longer are we under the stipulations of the will. 
Now we are under the stipulation of we are an adult and we can take freely from what was left to us. Does that make sense? Morse Tan, does that make sense? Dean of the law school, got it? Okay, explain all that right. Okay, so that's the picture. The picture is that we have been set free, we've been redeemed, we've been bought back by Christ as heirs, and because we are heirs, now we are completely free. Now, Paul goes on to say, but these people who are coming in and trying to confuse you, it's not like a dad who's taking care of his children, now it's like a dad who's trying to always control their children. Like someone who is leaving their kids an inheritance but saying, hey, you're never going to get the money unless you do this, 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 and this, and it goes the rest of your life. It would drive you nuts. Look what it says in verses 8 and following. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and the beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. That statement, you observe days, months, seasons, and years, is the idea, is you're submitting yourselves back to the law. You're going back under the law, and there's no point in doing so. In a way, if you allow yourselves to believe in a works-based salvation after Christ has come, you are denying the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are denying that Jesus is enough. And that's what these Judaizers were doing when they were coming to the Galatians and saying, hell no, 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 yes, it's Christ, but you also have to do all of this in order to earn your salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul writes this, and we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, not of the law, not of the old way of doing things, but of the Spirit. For the letter, the law, kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so in other words, that any time that you are being drawn or pulled back into this old way of doing things, in this works-based idea of salvation, that you have to be good enough, that you have to be kind enough, sweet enough, love enough, you have to do all of these things in order to be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you're basically taking yourself back into a system that kills, not one that gives life. And God did not come to kill, God came to give life through His Son. John Bunyan, that great theologian of the 1600s, he wrote a book. He wrote an entire book to to attack uh, another author named Edward Fowler who had written a book called The Design of Christianity. And so John Bunyan wrote an entire book to counteract this book that was written by Edward Fowler. And listen to what John Bunyan, how he started his book. Now think about this, it's that today like a, you know, a, a bestseller, New York Times bestseller, and the very first words were written like this, you sir are a pretend minister of the word, and you so vilely expose to public view the rottenness of your heart in principles that are diametrically opposite to the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. He says, you sir are evil. You're a pretend preacher, you're not real, and he wrote an entire book and started it from that premise. John Bunyan says that any time 
that we take away from the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ any time that we denigrate the grace and the freedom that comes and liberty that comes in Christ, any time that we set aside what Christ has done and run back to the idea that we must do, do, do in order to experience the gospel salvation, it is diametrically opposed to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul ends Galatians chapter 4 giving us a an illustration. And I'm not going to read all the way through. And guys, if you would, just jump all the way down to the end in verse 30. And so in verse 30, it says this, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. This is a reference to the fact that Abraham, going all the way back 1,500 years, 1,600 years before Christ, going all the way back to that time, that Abraham had a son, Ishmael, through Hagar. You remember that story. He had a, a son named Isaac that was promised through, through Sarah. And so what God was saying is that the freedom comes through the line that God promised, not through when man tried to create a line. And so the idea that's given here is this. Ishmael was man's attempt to fulfill God's plan. Isaac was God's way of fulfilling his promise. That it all comes through trusting and believing that the law will always be man's futile attempt to earn their way to God and it is a waste of time because Jesus is enough. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Today, the entire picture that we gather from Galatians chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, oh, and by the way, in 5 and 6 in the next two weeks, that the entire picture that we gain is this. Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. And that no matter how good you think you must be to get to God, all of it is a waste of thinking and a waste of time. Because Jesus is all you need. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain but he washed it white as snow. Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder we received today from Galatians 3 and 4. God, that we don't have to try to figure out how to get to you. We don't have to figure out what we must do and how we must serve and how we must live. That God, what we must do is believe in faith because it is through faith that we experience the gift of salvation, believing Jesus is your son who died and rose again. God, we know, as we've talked about last week, and we talk about it, and we'll talk about it again next week, we know that once we believe, it's going to change the way we act, for sure. But to get to you doesn't require a radical transformation in what we do and serve and how we live it requires believing in you, which will then produce a radical transformation. God, because it's all about Christ. 
So God, I pray in this moment, if anyone here has never come to that realization, Lord, speak truth into their hearts right now. Help them to come to you. Make the decision today to believe in you. And God, for that, we give you praise. With their heads bowed and with their eyes closed, our team is gathering here at the front. In a moment, we're gonna conclude our service. And as always, the altar is open. If you are here today and you have never grasped the idea, never grasped the concept, never have really kind of taken in this whole picture that all you must do is believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died and rose again. If you've been working your fingers to the bone to try to be good enough to earn your way to heaven, and even today that you're constantly questioning whether you're good enough, questioning whether you can earn it, questioning whether you have made it, then when we conclude our service in a moment, I want to encourage you to believe one thing, Jesus is enough. To put him first in your life, And when the service ends, I want you to make your way to the front, talk with one of our team members here and say, listen, I want to once and all, I want to settle this thing once and for all. I want to be saved. Maybe you want to come and kneel here and pray about another need, another situation. Talk with one of our team members about another issue. Maybe you want to come and join our church family or come for baptism, taking that next step in salvation. Whatever it is that God is speaking to you today, when we conclude this service, I want you to take that affirmative step to say I know it's not about me it's all about him God I pray for every person here if there's someone here that doesn't know you help them to make a step today to change not only today but eternity through trusting in Christ and God for that we give you praise we give you glory in Jesus name we pray amen the altar's open I don't want you to leave this room unless you're 100% sure that you are right with God. God bless you. Read Galatians 5 before next week. Have a good day. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.